Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Now, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, the sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophet, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him and put him, took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have forgotten you. And as for the fact that he raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he said in another psalm, you will not let the Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served his purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if someone tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would be our discipler today. Illuminate your text. Draw us to your person. Draw us to your teaching draw us to what you have for us. Let us hear from you today in the way we need. Jesus, we ask that you would convict us, that your word would cut 
that it would divide, that we would, we would hear what we need to hear, that our hearts, our ears would be soft and open to what it is you're saying to us. God, let us leave this space today hearing from you, responding to you, and celebrating your good work on our behalf. We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen. A cool story, See, we're jumping into a narrative today that is a really long one. I don't know if you guys remember this. By the way, we have those books at the back of the room. I hope each one of you got one of those. If you didn't snag one of those Acts for You books, that is a gift from our elders to you guys. We would love for you to have that, even though Al Mohler is a cessationist. It's okay. It's still a good book. You should take that as a gift from us to you. Please grab that. But, but this whole story is, 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 a, is a part of a larger story of this first missionary narrative of Paul and Barnabas going forth from the church in Antioch to preach the gospel, right? And, and we're continuing that on. And this specific scene, their stay in the city of Antioch, is actually a big enough scene that we're doing something a little different, dividing this into two sermons. And the reason is because, if you remember way back when, when we started Acts, I talked about how Acts is divided up by these long scenes of narrative and then these long sermons. It's this back and forth. Big chunk of narrative, big long sermon. Big chunk of narrative, big long sermon. We already looked at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We looked at, uh, we looked at Stephen's sermon before he was martyred. And now we're seeing the first of Paul's great sermons. He's going to deliver the rest of the big sermons throughout Acts. This is the first one we get. And so it just makes this chunk of story way longer than most of the narratives because it includes this whole chunk of his proclamation. So we're dividing this into two pieces. When we come back on the 4th of July, we're going to jump and finish out Acts 13. We're going to talk about some cool aspects of identity in Christ and that connects to some of the larger themes in Paul's first missionary journey. But today... We're going to focus in primarily on Paul's sermon and the message of grace and hope that it has and what that means for our experience of the freedom of Christ. And I want to use that term very specifically because Paul chooses to contextualize the gospel in this sermon around the concept of freedom. This Jesus offers you the forgiveness of sins. He frees you with a freedom that the law of Moses can never do. It's a unique way to talk about the gospel. And I think it very specifically and intentionally applies to us today as, as, as maybe more churched folk who've heard this sort of thing a lot. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the narrative. There's a couple cultural pieces I'm going to point out to hopefully try and clarify this story to us, to just really get us into the headspace of what's going on. We'll talk about grammar in Paul's sermon, because I know that's exciting for everyone. And ultimately, that's going to lead us, I think, to a really simple truth that I've already said like five times, which is Jesus wants you to be free from death and sin. And then we're going to end our time with a famous passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. And we're just going to end after that by singing our guts out to have our God. Sound good? Awesome. So, we're picking up in the second part, the second leg of Paul's first missionary journey. So remember, we've shifted our focus from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. And the church at Antioch, the Holy Spirit spoke to them, told them to raise up and send out two of their leaders as intentional missionaries. This is a new thing, not just 
Christians taking the gospel with them wherever they go, but Christians intentionally leaving where they are and going to new places for the purpose of taking the gospel with them. Paul and Barnabas are set aside and appointed to this first major missionary task that's recorded in church history. They take John Mark with them, who we've seen a couple times in the story, a young believer from Jerusalem, who, by the way, actually plays a really important role in early church history. We're going to see him kind of back and forth a decent amount of times over the story of Acts. But, but he goes with Paul and Barnabas on this first leg of the journey. I think we've got a map up here. And then a lot of your Bibles have something similar to this on the back pages. I would really encourage you, as we go through this narrative, to actually look up a Bible map of Paul's missionary journeys, because Luke is going to assume that you know the names of all of these cities and you know the geography. And most of us are not super well acquainted with ancient Roman geography, right? So having some visual references to kind of put yourself in the headspace, I think is really important. We'll reference back to this often, but, but it will be good for you to familiarize yourself with this on your own as we're studying through this. So they head out from Antioch, in the far kind of top right there, head to this island of Cyprus. This is the story we picked up last week. They travel across the island of Cyprus, preaching the gospel, and it culminates in this scene where Paul and Barnabas are invited to, to boldly preach the gospel to a secular Gentile Roman proconsul, and they are actively opposed by a demonically empowered dark magician, which, by the way, yes, that is what I meant to say in that context, this wild story where Paul speaks in the voice of the prophet of God and speaks judgment over a false prophet, dark magician, strikes him blind, and then preaches the gospel to this secular government official who then receives Christ and finds forgiveness. And you and I will get to celebrate with Sergius Paulus in heaven for eternity, which is insane. This is where our narrative picks up. They strike away from Paphos and head north kind of west and land there in the city of Pergamon. Now the text tells us at this point, John Mark jumps ship and heads home. He, that's a little dotted line. He makes his way directly back to Palestine, back to Jerusalem, and plugs into the church there. That's actually going to come become a point of contention for Paul a little later in the narrative, but we'll skip that for now. For all you need to know for now is that for the rest of this first missionary journey, it's just Paul and Barnabas. And these guys beeline from where they are at the coast there in Perga all the way up to that city in the far top left there called Antioch. Now, before we get too confused here, I need you to hear this part. There's a lot of Antiochs in ancient Rome, 16 of them to be exact, they were all founded by the same guy who liked the name Antioch because it sounded like his dad's name. And he was tasked with starting several important cities around the Roman Empire. And so he named them all Antioch, which is incredibly confusing. But this is a different one than the church at Antioch that sent and commissioned them. This is Antioch in Galatia. You can 
can see in that map, there's this region of the Roman Empire, a big chunk of what was in modern day Turkey is caught up in this. But this is the region of Galatia. This is a whole lot of Roman city-states that are subject to the empire, but they're not really a unified region similar to how like Palestine is. They're, they're pretty independent, autonomous little chunks of the Roman Empire. You may recognize that in Galatia because we have a book in our Bible called Galatians, right? This, we're going to talk about this when we get to it, but Paul's first missionary journey is almost exclusively focused on the people of Galatia. We don't necessarily know why, but it was. And he's going to experience a lot, a lot of spiritual opposition and physical opposition over the course of this missionary journey. And he plants all these churches and leaves leaves them in the midst of persecution and doubts and spiritual warfare. And so the book of Galatians was actually written almost immediately after the end of Paul's first missionary journey. It's almost certainly the earliest book in the entirety of the New Testament. And it's Paul summarizing his gospel theology to encourage these brand new churches in the middle of nowhere that are getting the stew beat out of them by a million different forces. We're going to see how these churches are formed, the spiritual warfare, the different circumstances, the crucible that led to the formation of these Galatian churches. I would encourage you guys, when we get to the end of Paul's first missionary journey, go read Galatians and read it in one sitting. Because Paul wrote it to encourage these churches that are getting started over these next few narratives. So, Paul and Barnabas end up in Antioch, and they go to the synagogue on the first Sabbath, and they hang out. Now, before we go on with this story, I know that I'm giving you guys a lot of kind of history and stuff. I know some of this stuff can be a little heady and boring, and I apologize for that. But it really, I think, is important to get us into the text, into the story, before we get to the actual message of it. We'll want to put ourselves in kind of the headspace of what's going on here. So Paul and Barnabas, they go to Antioch, and they go and they attend synagogue. Now, there's a couple things we need to know to understand this scene. The big one is this. At this point in world history, Judaism is a world religion. And there's a very specific reason for that. Go back to the Old Testament, when the, the world, the ancient empires were first coming to be, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the list of all the Ian's empires, they pretty much wrecked the entire known world down there at that time. And destroyed pretty much everything. And when the Babylonians conquered Judah and destroyed the last semblances of ancient Israel, the, the method by which the Babylonians kept control of the world was forced deportation. When they conquered a land, they would take the population and spread them out all over their empire with the hope that they would lose their cultural identity, that they would be so spread out, so far out of their context, that they would lose who they were and adopt the Babylonian culture. And by the way, this system worked perfectly, with one exception. The Jewish people refused to assimilate into Babylonian culture. They refused. When everyone else in the world basically just said, eh, at least I'm alive, I guess I'm Babylonian now, all hail Ishtar, I guess. The Jews just said, no, we're not doing that. And they found each other in whatever city they got sent to, and they grouped together and they locked arms around their identity as God's people. And if you read, especially the minor prophets, 
The vast majority of the ministry of the minor prophets is to these dispersed peoples, encouraging them to keep the faith, to stay connected to Yahweh in spite of the fact that Israel has been destroyed. Fast forward to when the Persian Empire allows people, they've called, you know, or a couple empires later, right? The Persians allow all these displaced peoples to go home if they want to. And a bunch of Jews do, and they reestablish Jerusalem, and it becomes Palestine, as it was known in the days of Jesus. But the vast majority of the Jewish people said, hey, we're good. We're good. We're established. We've made homes. We've started businesses. Like We think this is just what God has for us now. But they remained Jewish. And the reason they were able to remain Jewish is because of this system they constructed called the synagogue system. The Jewish people started building these actual physical buildings around the world called synagogues where they would gather together for prayer and worship. Now to us as Christians, we're like, yeah, that seems pretty normative. Like you build a building, you go worship. But this didn't exist in that day. Religion was incredibly geographically oriented in the ancient world. If you left your home and had to go live somewhere else, the assumption was your God stayed where you left. And wherever you moved to, you had to adapt to whatever the spiritual practice was there. And so for Jewish people all over the world to begin building synagogues and worshiping Yahweh, even though they aren't in Israel and they're nowhere near Jerusalem, which, by the way, I don't know when the last time you read like Leviticus was, but the vast majority of Jewish theology is centered around the city of Jerusalem, the building of the temple, the ministry of the priests, and the daily, weekly, monthly, and quarterly sacrifices that happened. But when this happened, there was no way to be a Jew elsewhere in the world. If you could not partake in the temple and the feasts and the sacrifices, you had no way to connect to God. But at this point, the temple's gone. The priests are dead. Israel is no more. And so the Jews adapted. And they built synagogues. And they began to train up two classes of leaders from these synagogues. Elders and rabbis, and these elders would connect themselves to local congregations and administrate the congregation and guide the people and help run the public education of their children. And the rabbis would train themselves deeply in the scriptures and theology, and they would travel from synagogue to synagogue, preaching and teaching. By this method, Judaism didn't just survive, it became a world religion. So transplant, fast forward a few empires later, and underneath the Roman Empire, there is established, strong, healthy Jewish presence pretty much in most of the Roman Empire. So when Paul and Barnabas travel to Antioch in Galatia, a place neither of them have ever been, they wander into town, and there's a synagogue. So they go there, and they hang out, and they listen. And they sit under this congregation. They hear the reading of the word. They hear the prayers of the people. But here's the coolest thing about all this. And this is just how God uniquely equips people for the calling he has on them. Paul is not just, like, Paul is a trained, established, known rabbi. The scripture tells us, you can read this in Galatians. Paul's one of the youngest people known in Jewish history to serve on the Sanhedrin, like the highest Jewish court. This man is an educated, trained rabbi. 
who wanders into town and sits in the back of church. So when they get to the end of the service, the elders say, hey, we've got a rabbi in town. You guys want to share? You have something to encourage the people? And Paul just like cracks his knuckles like, oh, do I? (laughs) And he steps into this sermon that I think is so insanely powerful. And what I love about this is that this ministry happens because Paul has the credentials to do this. God has uniquely equipped him to be able to step up in this moment and proclaim the gospel. And he does. And we get one of, again, these famous narrative chunks of Acts, one of these sermons. One of the interesting things about what Luke chose to preserve for us in the story of Acts is that all the sermons preserved, whether it's Peter's or Stephen's or Paul's, they're all pretty much the same sermon. They're all very similar in how they're constructed and their themes. They're just applied a little differently. Each of the main sermons in Acts is what we today would call a biblical theology. They walk through the history of God's people, connecting the overarching redeeming themes, leading up to their culmination in the person and work of Jesus. And each one of these sermons culminates in a strong proclamation of both judgment and invitation to receive the work of Jesus. This is what this is what Peter does at Pentecost. This is what Stephen does in front of the Sanhedrin. This is what Paul does here. This is what Paul's going to do 15 more times before Acts is done. But it's always the same message. Look what God has been doing for the last 2,000 years. It's all pointing to Jesus. Look who Jesus is. Look what he accomplished for you. Don't miss this. Our God is trustworthy. He's been making the same promises and doing the same thing and pointing people to the same truth literally for thousands of years. And now it all comes together in Jesus. So please repent, believe, receive, because you do not want to miss the grace of God. It's each one of the sermons. And they're powerful. And I love the way Paul talks about this one. See, the the whole point of these, these biblical theology sermons is essentially just the idea that resurrection is purely and simply a continuation of the same love and provision God has been supernaturally giving since the beginning. But the whole point of these sermons is you shouldn't be surprised by Jesus. This is the sort of thing God has been doing the entire time. There is an invitation here. Paul uniquely structures this sermon, this invitation, around some pronouns. I don't know if you caught this as we were reading through this, but Paul very specifically groups this sermon together around some specific pronouns that I think are actually, it's just a really cool way to think about this. So in the beginning of his sermon, as Paul is recounting Jewish history, you notice he constantly says, God and he, in reference to God. He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this taking all of Israel's history and planting it firmly in the direct person and work of God. Yahweh is our God. He is the one who has done all of these things, going all the way back to Egypt and working their way through the history of the judges and the kings. It's all about what God has done. He, 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 he. And then when he gets past David and gets to the person of Jesus... He introduces us 
to a new prayer. And all of a sudden we're introduced to they. You see this? And he starts telling us, in contrast to what God has done, we're introduced to what they have done. They being the religious leaders in the day of Jesus. Who are so blind to what God has been doing that they end up fulfilling the very prophecies they should have been studying. And they put Jesus to death. And he creates this insanely stark contrast between the established religious leadership of Judaism and the very God of Judaism, Yahweh. He and they. And then he comes back to you and says, but look what God did. He raised Jesus from the dead. He worked in spite of them. He raised him from the dead. And he's called together witnesses. And again, Paul's doing the same thing. He's saying, the resurrection, the work we see in Jesus, the invitation of Jesus, this is the natural culmination of what God has been doing for thousands of years. Don't be surprised by the resurrection of Jesus. This is the kind of thing God has been doing since the beginning. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be like they. Don't miss what God is doing. And then... Paul introduces we and you. I love this part. God has been working this redemptive history the whole time. And now God has been raised and God has done this new amazing thing. And God has set up these witnesses and the we is them. It's Paul and Barnum. We are here as witnesses. We have seen this new thing God is doing. And there is an invitation for you. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. We've, we've all been recipients of God's faithfulness and His patience and His promise keeping throughout biblical history. But there is a they who have rejected God's work and God's faithfulness. And there is a we, and we are inviting you into this gospel message. You don't have to be like them. You can receive this invitation to engage in God's work. And what is the invitation that's being presented? Because it's, it's the freedom of Jesus. The forgiveness of sin. Saying because of Jesus, because of this new thing, Jesus has made a way for all peoples to experience real forgiveness and real freedom here and now, right here, right now. What an invitation. Now, guys, he's in a synagogue, remember? These are faithfully practicing Jews and God fears and converts to Judaism. They know what it is to experience freedom in Christ. Again, I don't know how long it's been since you've done your deep dive through Leviticus or where you are and you read the Bible in a year plan. But the law of Moses does offer freedom and forgiveness. In a sense. It says, do these things exactly this way. It won't take away your sin. But it will create a system by which, even in your sin, you can still have communion with God. You can't be in His presence, but the priest can, and the priest will intercede for you. 
You can't wipe away your sin, but the blood can cover up God's wrath over the sin. And if you keep up with this, and you do what is right, and you seek righteousness, and you do the sacrifices, and you honor God, it's not, I mean, it's not what He designed for you in the beginning. It's not Adam and Eve. It's not perfection. But it will keep you in connection with Him. And that's certainly better than being under His wrath. And by the way, that is the message of God in His Word to His people. Do this, and you can have a relationship. Paul is saying, guys, guys, that is not real freedom. I mean, it's certainly better than that. But that is not real freedom. That's not what God actually designed you for. That's not what God had in mind when he built this world. Was you and him separated by a veil and by multiple layers of relationship where he only speaks to the priest. And if he speaks to you, you'll you'll melt Indiana Jones style. That's not what he designed for us. But that's the reality that Moses and the law and Sinai gives us. But beloved, God is doing something new. And Jesus has accomplished something new. And he says, in Jesus there is the forgiveness of sins. Through this man, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. God is doing something new. And that new thing is the freedom of Jesus. Real freedom. True freedom. Jesus does not Cover your sins. He takes them and destroys them and forgives them. And they cease to exist. I want you guys to hear that. He does not leave you covered. He leaves you righteous. He does not leave you depending on a priest to have a layered, separated relationship with God. He intercedes on your behalf. And then he tears down the dividing wall of the temple and leaves you with his righteousness that you, you, sinful you, may approach the holy God of the universe with boldness in your new state of righteousness. I'm reading through Exodus in my read the Bible in your plan. And there's this section where they're getting ready to go get the covenant. And God says like ten times, hey, don't let anyone touch the mountain. To the point where Moses goes, yeah, I know you've told me this part already. Don't let anyone touch the mountain. Look, they're all freaked out. You're doing this lightning thing and fire. None of them are going to touch the mountain. And God goes, I'm serious. Don't let them touch the mountain. If they touch my holiness, they will drop dead. Because that is not the kind of relationship God built you. He didn't build you to stay away. He designed you and built you to be be with Him. To be connected to Him. To be His beloved. To walk with you hand in hand. to, To be intimately connected with you. Beloved, it is so important. 
for us to acknowledge that the freedom offered by Jesus is a freedom that nothing else in this world can offer. Not even Moses, not even Simon, not even religion. It is so important for us to sit in this truth today. Beloved, you have real freedom in Christ here and now, today, if you want it. That invitation is in your lap. And I know, I know, fellow church friends, that your temptation right now is to think, dang, this is awesome. I'm so glad he's preaching this to all the lost people in here. I'm so glad I've already received this. This sermon isn't like, for me. I know, like you're laughing right about you. You're with me. I know that temptation is there. To go, man, this is an awesome, awesome gospel presentation for those people that need to receive Christ for the first time and, and walk in forgiveness. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you're in this space and you're debating what it actually means to submit to Christ and you haven't made that choice to, to actually follow Christ and submit your life to Him, I would beg you to consider the invitation of Jesus. Because you do not want to miss it. Because Jesus has life and freedom and joy for you like you can't imagine. I would beg you to consider that. But I also know that for every single one of us, whether you have been following Christ for decades or not, needs to sit in this invitation. You need to consider that Jesus is calling you to real freedom right here and right now. If you've been intentionally following Jesus for years, I want you to consider the invitation of Jesus. Jesus offers you freedom from your sin. Freedom from the law. Freedom from performance. Freedom from pretending. Freedom from the fight to have to prove yourself as good enough for God or good enough for your religious experience or good enough for anything. Freedom from the need to be good enough for God. See, the gospel acknowledges that the only thing we bring to the equation of the gospel is our sin. That's what we bring to the table. We've messed up, and we continue to mess up. Even those who've been walking in Christ for decades and who appear very holy, they probably are very holy, they still bring lots of sin to the table. Still. Finding salvation in Christ does not magically make you sinless. Can some of the seasoned saints amen that for me? It just doesn't work that way. So many of us fall into this trap where, where we found so much freedom in Christ in our confession when we found Him. But as we have been in church longer and longer, we have subtly learned that now, on the other side of the baptismal, we're supposed to actually be good. See, at the beginning, the pastor said, we all are sinners. Come, come one and all, come as you are. And it was so free. But then when we stepped into the church culture and church life and continued forward, we realized, oh shoot, now I'm supposed to be really good. 
And now I'm supposed to have my stuff together. And so we stop confessing and we start pretending. And we act like we're somehow perfect now and somehow deserving of the grace we've been given. But we all know in our heart of hearts that it's absolute garbage. And yet we still do We still show up to church on Sunday with fake plastered on the smile. Come on, guys. We don't want our GC or our discipleship group or our friends to actually see the depths of our heart. So all we talk about is the blessing of God, how good things are, how we're figuring it out, how it's all good. It's good to be seen. We don't want to talk about our raging anxiety. We don't want to talk about our life-destroying battles, the rapture fear, or our predispositions towards gossip or anger, or bitterness, or lust, or pornography, or laziness, or grudges, or refusal to forgive others, or abuse of alcohol, or any other escapism that is popular in the moment. I could go on, but you all get the point. We learn quickly that these are the sort of things we just shouldn't be struggling with. We should be passive. So we don't talk about it. But I have amazing news for you, beloved of Jesus. I have amazing news for you. Jesus Christ offers you the gospel invitation of Jesus to come and lay your burdens at his feet is there for you right now. It does not matter how long you have been pursuing Christ. It does not matter how mature you should be by this point. It does not matter how long you've been serving or leading, how many VBSs you've helped with, how long your discipleship roster is. It doesn't matter, beloved. Jesus offers you freedom here and now. You can bring your burdens to Him. You can confess your sins to Him. And you can find He says, come to me. Come to me. When you are weary, when you are burdened, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beloved, some of us have found in our church culture experience that the light and easy burden of Jesus has become a heavy burden of church. And I want you to hear something. You can be exactly as you are. And you can draw your sin into life through confession. And you can walk in freedom in Christ. And we want to be in that Because that is the gospel. That's, that's the only gospel message. If you're in this space and you're not in Christ, come to Him. He loves you. He's for you. He's waiting for you. When you push past your fears, your embarrassment, your doubts, I promise you, you will find Jesus waiting for you with life and with freedom. And beloved, if you are in this space and you are in Christ, but you're a sinner like me, please come down. He loves you. He is for you. He is waiting for you. And when you push past your fears and your embarrassment and your doubts, you will find 
Jesus waiting for you. Why? The message never changes. I want to be in this journey with you, church. Don't suffer alone. Don't bear a burden Christ never called you to bear. Come to Him. Come to Him in repentance and confession and find how surprised you will be by the joy and freedom and life of Jesus. I'm going to end us with this famous passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. I encourage you just to listen to this and let it walk over again. If you want to come up here, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read this, and I'd like for us to just go wise. Because we are invited to live in the freedom of Jesus. The gospel invitation never ceases to be in front of you. The invitation to come and bear your burdens exactly as you are and be weak in your sin exactly as you are and find nothing but love and acceptance. That exists for you right now. It's worth celebrating. We worship the God of freedom, the God of love, the God of grace, the God who forgives sins. Amen? Let me read this word to you. And then I want us to sing like there's more people in the room than there actually are. Hi, Daddy. Hi, Daddy. Hi, Daddy. Romans chapter 7 tells us this. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say that one again. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in a likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of flesh, but, but those who live according to the Spirit, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's death. It's bearing a burden you weren't called to bear. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life, and it is peace. The mind of the Son of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, they just, they just can't please God. You, however, you, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. For anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, hear this church, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. I do not care how sin has affected you. I don't care what empty realms you run to over and over. We understand that the body, the flesh, is death. But if Christ is in you, then the spirit in you is alive. Because of the righteousness of Jesus. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life your mortal bodies through His Spirit. Beloved, we worship the God of freedom, the God of life, 
And that invitation never stops. Never ends. Never listens. It is here for you right now. So let's stand up. Let's sing about the God who has set us free. Amen. Amen. Thank you.